So um, if you think about over the last um, two, three, four years, uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, instances of terror attacks, you think about the mall shootings, you think about the school shootings, you think about the Las Vegas shooting, you think about the church shootings, and you think about the type of fear that strikes into us. If you think just, just purely statistically, right, um, it is a very, very, very low chance that you will be wounded or killed in a terrorist attack. Very low. But yet that still, that still frightens us. For the most part, I don't, know of, I don't know of anybody that knows someone. This might not be true of you guys, but it's true of me. I don't know of anybody that knows someone that's been killed in a terrorist attack. Um, and so for the most part, we are pretty well insulated from people that have been affected by it. But because of media and because of just the sensation, not sensationalism, because of the, the um, absolutely frightening aspect of these and the random nature of the terrorist attacks, it, it strikes a lot of fear into us. You might have had your parents concerned about you going overseas, study abroad. I remember um, when I was in college, I have a twin sister. When I was in college, she wanted to sp- study abroad in Spain. In her, and, uh, and around that time, there was a terrorist attack in Spain, about 2004 or so, is that right? And my parents didn't let her go um, because they were so frightened that she would be a victim of a terror attack. Um, some of you uh, might, have, might have a little bit of nervousness or anxiety about going to well-attended events, maybe a, a football game, and just kind of in the back of your mind a fear that, that this would be uh, a potential target for terrorists. And you think about how... Even though it's very unlikely that we will be struck by a terrorist attack, very unlikely that you will be a victim in some, some way or another of a terrorist attack, that you have some kind of latent fear of it. And maybe even particularly your parents have a, have a quite overwhelming fear that you'll be in a situation um, where uh, uh, there's a terrorist attack. And then take that kind of fear, take that kind of um, reaction and put it in the first century. At this point, only one person has been killed. For their faith after Jesus. <laughs> Only one person has been killed, and that's Stephen. And it'd be easy to look at this, and we know there's thousands of Christians and things that, that, that um, um, and, and, and from our distance, not really realize the type of terror that this would strike into the Christians. But if you can imagine being in the same city and knowing Stephen, you might have heard him speak. He was so prominent. He was one of seven men chosen to help to make sure that the widows got the food distribution. And this man was murdered for his faith. And we read in the scriptures about people being stoned, but do you ever stop and think about how brutal that process was? From historical accounts, we know that it would take somewhere between 20 minutes and two hours for someone to die through stoning. There are different methods. Often they threw them in a pit. Um, the, Mishnah says, the Mishnah says that it should be a pit twice as tall as the, the, the person they're stoning. So, you know, it would be a pit about 10 to 12 feet. They would throw them in there. There would be a bed of rocks in there. The hope would be that that would kill them. But if not, they would just start throwing rocks in there. And, and, um, and so you, can you imagine how terrifying it would be to see a stoning? To know that someone you knew was killed in this way. Thrown into a pit and have somebody, people, one after another come and throw rocks into the pit until you finally were so wounded, until you finally were bleeding out, until you finally you had enough hits to the head. I don't exactly know all the different ways you could die from stoning, but I'm sure there are several. But could you imagine knowing somebody that for 20 minutes, maybe even up to two hours, were lying in a pit having people throw stones at them until they died? And then imagine being in the community that all of a sudden you're fair game. All of a sudden, all this 
progress the gospel has made. Thousands of people have come to faith from about 120 people that are, that are mentioned in Acts chapter 1. So the gospel has, has gone out and the church has grown 20 times in a matter of a few months. And then all of a sudden, you're faced with the, the authorities have decided to persecute you. Can you imagine the fear that struck into your heart? Can you imagine the fear you have for your family, for your friends, for yourself, that you could be thrown into a pit? You could be the person that for 20 minutes to, to two hours are having stones hurled at you, all because you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What would that do to a community? Think about your morale. Everything's going great. The authorities are threatening us, but they can't do anything to us because we have God protecting us. Because we have God watching over us. The gates of hell will not prevail against our faith. And then all of a sudden, one of your leaders is brutally murdered. And it starts to seem like maybe, maybe things aren't going to go well. Maybe things aren't going to be comfortable. Maybe the gospel's progress has been halted, stopped in its tracks, because now the authorities are deciding to crack down. All their threats that they made against the apostles that you thought were empty threats or that you thought God would protect you from, now all of a sudden God is allowing them to kill you. And that is the mindset the early Christians would have had. They'd have been frightened. They perhaps would have been huddled in fear. And in fact, what happened is uh, some, not all, but some fled Jerusalem. Look at Acts chapter 8. chapter 8, excuse me, verse 1 starts by saying of, of Stephen's death that Saul, whom you know will become Paul in just a few chapters, Saul approved of their killing him. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea in Samaria. So, a persecution great enough. We don't know if others are being killed. We don't know if all of a sudden, if maybe just the Jewish authorities had decided now they're going to crack down. Stephen's been killed. They kind of had the people behind them wanting the Christianity to be stamped out. So, maybe they're just um, trying to kick people out of Jerusalem. Maybe there's no more death. We, you know, we don't really know what's happening, but it's a great enough persecution that the church scatters. Again, can you imagine being in that community? You would run to. You wouldn't want to stay in Jerusalem and risk your life or your family's life. So you would leave. And what happens is the church that had been told to go to Jerusalem, the church scatters at this point. I mean, you think about the, the fear that we have, even in our culture. Um, I, uh, um, I Just this weekend, talking to people on my wife's side of the family and my side of the family about politics and religion, it's very clear that people are, are scared that our culture is turning against Christianity, that people are becoming um, less interested in the gospel or less tolerant of, of particular Christian beliefs. And the fear is that, that we maybe we're only a decade or two away from, from Christians being marginalized or maybe even persecuted. And, and you hear people worried about this. You hear the fear. There's even um, theologians and thinkers who come out. This is um, you, you guys uh, probably didn't hear about this, but there was a big discussion earlier this year because a theologian published a book, and it was called The Benedict Option. Um, 
And, and his idea was like, look, since we're being persecuted and marginalized and people aren't interested in the faith, what we need to do as Christians is, is that we just need to kind of retreat from culture, go into our own little kind of pseudo-monasteries, and just kind of disengage as much as we can. And there's a lot of discussion about this pros and cons because some people think they look at the culture turning and they think the best thing to do is to run. The best thing to do is retreat. And you amplify that to where it's not just marginalization by the culture, but it's by somebody being killed. And you get what ha- what's happening with the church here. And so, if you were in the early church, you would have been frightened about what happened to Stephen. At this point, the church has spread. At this point, the, uh, the um, uh, thousands have come to faith. At this point, you've gone through a couple of hiccups with, with internal division and some prominent people who were sinning. And you come to this point and you start scattering because there's persecution around. But what's fascinating about this moment is even though they're run out of Jerusalem for their faith, even though they're run out frightened that they too might be killed or they too might be persecuted, they run out and, and they don't just leave. But notice what's ha- what happens. Um, verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Paul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. But notice in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now realize that the early church didn't want to be persecuted. No one was seeking for one of their leaders to be martyred. But what happens is, they, uh, Stephen gets martyred, the church gets frightened, and they start running. But everywhere they go, they start proclaiming the gospel, or preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And notice what happens at this point. The church had not been living out its mission. Jesus told the disciples to go into all the world to be witnesses of Him to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And at this point, they've only been in Jerusalem. That this point at which that the, the church seems to be frightened, this point at which if you were there in the midst, kind of in the ranks of the Christians, you would feel demoralized, you would feel frightened. This is the point at which God's work is most evident. God is not frightened because of the persecution. God is not terrified. He's not uncertain. What God knows is that the church needed a push out of Jerusalem to live out the mission. No one outside of Jerusalem was hearing the gospel because they were all comfortable and content staying in Jerusalem. And the way that God shook them out of that was by Stephen's death. Two weeks ago when we looked at um, Stephen's death, you know, I kind of asked you this question, did you think Stephen's life uh, do you think Stephen's life was a good life to be murdered that way for spreading the gospel? And you see the effects here that God used his death to push the church back on mission, to send the church out. And from this point forward, I, I refer to this as a hinge moment, from this point forward in, the, uh, in Acts, the church goes from one area to another area to another area, so that at the very end of Acts, the church is in, is in Rome. And Paul has plans to go to Spain at various points. And so Stephen's death, which was frightening and terrifying, which he certainly did not seek, which his family surely did not want, Stephen's death becomes the tool that God uses to push the church back on mission, to take the church out of its comfort zone, 
so they live out the mission. And what's fascinating to me about this um, is, is uh, um, how at this point, if you were just looking at this, you would think that Stephen, I mean, sorry, you would think that um, at, at the point of Stephen's death, God's influence was at its lowest. And if you were in the crowd, I mean, if you were a Christian, and boy, you are a Christian, but if you were a Christian in this context, you would start to, to have questions. Why didn't God protect Stephen? Surely Stephen, who, whose reasoning the Jews could not oppose, who was a man full of spirit, full of wisdom, who had spent his time making sure that widows had enough food, surely Stephen's life was better off being spent preaching and teaching and making sure widows ate than being murdered by the Jews. When you start to wonder, where was God in Stephen's death? Why didn't God protect Stephen? Is God going to protect me? Maybe God doesn't have the type of influence here that I wish He had. Like at this very point, you would start to feel that God's influence was the least. But it's at this very point in the text that God's influence is the greatest. Because God's plan was to use Stephen's death to send the church out. God's plan was to make sure that the church went on mission by working through the death of Stephen. The church just needed that little push. Not really a little push, someone died for it, right? But the church needed to be pushed out of their comfort zone. To be sent out. Um, you, you guys know I have three kids and, um, and, and kind of they will default to sitting on the couch and watching the iPad, right? Or playing the Nintendo Switch, or, or playing the Wii U, or playing an iPhone, or whatever. You know, they they will default to sitting down and just playing games or watching videos. And you kind of have to tell them that you you know Jude, particularly my oldest, is the most interested in, in electronics. And I have to say to him, you got five more minutes. He's like, what am I going to do? He's like, I don't, there's nothing. To, I'm so bored. And I'm like, look, I said, go outside or go do something else. It's like you, you're not going to play the device all day. But what happens is if he just will go and find something else to do, he will be just as engaged in that. He'll go and ride his bike, or play with the neighbors, or do something like that. Like Once he gets that little push, he's broken out of his comfort, he's broken out of his comfort zone, and, and he's doing other things. And it's like the, the, the early church was just kind of fixated there, on Jerusalem, on their comfort zone, on their kind of internal problems. And Stephen's death was God powerfully working to give the church a push out of the boundaries of Jerusalem. Next semester, as we continue to follow the story, um, we, would, we will see how this pushed them into Samaria, pushed them into Antioch, and pushed the church from that point on to areas of Asia Minor and Greece and Italy so that, um, so that, the, that the Word of God continued to spread. All because God's influence worked through Stephen's death. But think about, the, think about, how, um, think about the, the reaction that you would naturally have to Stephen's death that I keep referencing. Your fear. Your concern that maybe God's influence is waning. Maybe God isn't as, um, isn't as present or powerful or active as you had thought. Like in, in that moment, what you... Um, though I think in many ways fear is um, natural in that moment, I think it also betrays a lack of faith. Because if you were in... If you were in the early community and you began to be fearful that maybe the gospel is not going to go out, maybe the church won't prevail, 
Maybe the authorities will be successful in squashing this. I mean, think about the fear we have about even our culture changing. If you talk to you know older people, maybe you don't have this kind of reaction. But if you talk to older people, that that is a legitimate fear of theirs. How can the church function in a society that's going to sue them for false beliefs? In a society that doesn't want to hear that Jesus is the only way. How can the church function in that kind of society? That kind of that kind of concern that we have. And think about how that betrays a lack of faith in God's work. Do you think God is up in heaven nervous about culture turning on us? Do you think the creator of this world was sitting there watching what was unfolding in Jerusalem and concerned about 70 Jewish men who had Stephen put to death? Do you really think the maker, the creator of this world, can be outwitted or overpowered by the wishes of a few people who rebel against him, who don't love him, who don't believe in Jesus? What happens when we have that fear, when we have those concerns, what we're betraying is that we really think that God isn't that active. Because we, we, we often have this, this, um, this small view of God. Um, we we kind of picture God as, as up in heaven, unable to do very much, um, other than orchestrate a few storms or something, right? Setting the Bible down. He's up there kind of hoping. Um, it's, almost like God is, it's almost like God is someone watching um, the Iron Bowl. Right, like all of us, what we experienced watching uh, the Iron Bowl or any other game is that what you hope to happen is one thing, but you don't have any influence on that. No matter how much you wanted Auburn to win, that had no impact on whether Auburn won or not. No matter how much you wanted Alabama to win, that had no influence, clearly, over whether or not they won. <laughs> um, you're sitting there nervous, right? I hope he catches that pass. Don't throw it to that guy, right? Hope uh, you know. Hope you make this feel cool. You're sitting there nervous at all these moments. God does not sit watching the world unfold in that way. God is not an actor. I mean, God is not a spectator watching the game of of the church unfold before Him. The Bible pictures God as much more active. God. God's spirits at work in His people, obviously. But, but if you read carefully throughout the Scriptures, yes, people have free will, but yes, God is, is active in the lives of people. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, right? An evil spirit was sent upon Saul in the Old Testament. Not this Saul, but the old Saul, right? God's spirit's at work to send people revelation in the Scriptures. God's not a spectator just watching this unfold. But God is in the midst Active And the question for the church is, does the church have enough faith in that? That the way we look at situations that might seem like um, an obstacle, that might seem frightening, terrorist attacks, culture changing, refugees coming into our country, the Jewish leaders turning against the faith, that we don't view those things with fear. We don't view those things with a lack of faith, but we view those things knowing that our God can work in circumstances that we might not know how He's going to work in them, right? We look at those circumstances and know that, that even in the cases where it seems like God's influence is the least, where it seems like God's... Um, uh, um, um, what am I trying to say? When it, when it seems like the kingdom of God is kind of losing or, or, or um, 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 waning, declining... <laughs> 
that even in those circumstances, it might be the case that God is the most at work pushing the church to mission. I guarantee you that in cultures um, in, in Europe, for example, where the church, uh, church attendance has declined, where other religions are having more prominence than Christianity did, even though historically it didn't, I guarantee you that the church is becoming more evangelistic now than it ever has before. Why? Because they have to be. That's not an accident. It's not an accident that refugees are, are, are coming into Europe and churches are realizing that now we have all these people who are coming from lands that we could have never gotten into safely, coming into places where we kind of enter our backyard and they're evangelizing it. Those of you who are interested in going to the Austria trip um, in the summer, that one of our elders, Steve Lambert, is leading, um, that's exactly what is going on there. Refugees are coming. This isn't an accident. This isn't something to be frightened of. This isn't something that God's wringing His hands over. But instead, this is something that God is using to push the church into mission. Do you have the faith to trust that these twists and turns, these moments that seem frightening, these moments that seem like uh, they're inexplicable, how God's going to use it? Do you have the faith to believe that God is not just active there, but maybe more active in that moment, pushing the church towards its mission than he was when everything seemed to be going great. I wonder in your life how God has been pushing you. I mean, you, most of you have been coming through most of this semester, and, and I hope you realize that the main reason we're looking at, we've looked at Acts this, this semester, uh, I mean the first eight chapters of Acts, is to really think hard about what does it mean for us as Christians to live on mission? What does it mean for us to be disciples who are supposed to, to witness to Jesus, to all the people that we come into, to all the pla- in all the places that we live? And I know from my life um, that, that this larger story of the church being pushed into mission by suffering, the church being pushed into mission by... Um, uh, um, kind of twists and turns that they didn't expect. But that's often true of me on an individual level. That the times in my life when I have most gotten off, um, kind of uh, the times in my life when I have most um, lost my focus on the mission of God, is a time when God starts to do things to shake me, to send people into my life. People that maybe I wouldn't have naturally reached out to, but I've encountered either through living next to me or just through sitting in a coffee shop and they start talking to me. And I start realizing that, that maybe, maybe God is pushing me to share the gospel with them. Pushing me to love them and talk with them and befriend them. The times when my life plans kind of got derailed. I was going to go do this or go do that. And then a door was closed. And realizing that maybe that's not an accident. Maybe it's not the case that, that God's up there kind of disappointed that this path didn't work out for me. But maybe it's the case that God is more active in my life than I can imagine. And He was just diverting me, just kind of nudging me onto a path of with a more focus on Him. And I wonder for you this semester, if you've been aware and attentive to the ways that God has been pushing you. Some of you didn't get in, aren't getting uh, internships that you're applying for for, this, for uh, the summer. Some of you have had relationships end. 
Some of you might uh, not have gotten into a professional school that you wanted to, or you got a grade in a class which is going to keep you from getting a professional school you wanted to. And I wonder if you see that as an obstacle in your life. I wonder if you see that as something that um, is, is, is uh, inexplicable and uncontrollable. Or I wonder if you've spent some time in prayer. This might not be the case, but I wonder if you spent some time in prayer and asked yourself, if God is using the relationship ending, if God is using you not getting the internship, if God is using the bad grade, if God is using the job you didn't get, if He's using that to push you into a greater focus on Him, into a greater focus on His mission, than you would have been otherwise. I mean, my hope and prayer is in addition to you guys sharing the gospel with the friends that you're next to, um, the friends that you sit next to in class, or your roommates, or your family, is that some of you will devote your life to missions. And I wonder if any of you have had a door closed because God is nudging you towards the mission field. Maybe not as a full-time missionary. Maybe it's so that you use what you're learning here and you go get a job in the mission field and kind of do it. Um, it's known as bivocational ministry. You do ministry and you work a secular job. But I wonder if you've reflected, prayed, thought, if God is doing that. And I wonder if your faith is great enough to believe that God could be active that way. That God could be using those events to push you onto a different path. To make you more evangelistic. To make you more focused on the kingdom of God. You know, if you look at the stats, despite our feeling that the church is shrinking or whatever, it's, it's actually not. Do you know there are more people who attend church and read their Bible and pray regularly now than there were in 1970? It's hard to believe, isn't it? But it's true. There are more, I mean, by, by several million more in the U.S. You don't believe that because that's not how the news reports it. What's happened is the people for whom their faith was just an ornament on their week, their faith was just something else they did, those people are dropping off. But the people, if you could measure kind of a devotedness to faith, that is not shrinking. In fact, that's growing. And around the world, it's growing exponentially. God is not wringing His hands. He's not nervous. He knows exactly what He's doing. And He's using the suffering, and He's using the changes, and He's using the culture switching on us, and He's using refugees, and He's using your problems in your life to push the church into a greater focus on mission. Have you been listening this semester to that? Have you been listening to God doing that in your life? Let's stand and sing.